0: No time, cave. Anton liked to imagine that I'd been murdered and that I'd come back to life. He would have conceded, I suppose, that this was little more than a device intended to stimulate his readers into thinking about the differences between beginnings and endings. He would become preoccupied with this. If a book had a beginning, it had to have an ending. In terms of his own book, he thought he saw where events were taking me. He'd physically written seven chapters. Yet now it seemed that only the philosopher Heraclitus knew where the book was going, because he was the only one who had read the rest of it. Once Anton was on to the possibility that Otto and Flames may already have been written, he was forced to wonder to what extent he was writing anything. As he was the one doing all the typing, though, he was damned if he wasn't going to be allowed to make his own contribution. If it was to be worthy of his future reader, a seemingly unforgiving thinker, made of marble, spun by insects, Otto and Flames would need to be an objective and accurate description of the strangeness Urania kept revealing to him. Given time, he hoped to be able to add something of himself to the writing. This was not unreasonable. Over the years, he'd developed certain skills in the trimming and clarification of his perceptions, so that ultimately they could be steered on a sensible course through the language of the written word. It is vital to remember, though, that what Anton was being shown in the unseen was not being imagined by anyone. Exactly as it is with our own world, his immersions were as real as anything that might be perceived. In due course I will have more to say about the insoluble problem of where our perceptions come from and where they take us. For now, we must regard the confusions in Anton's mind as true events that were capable of being interpreted. They weren't only possibilities, They were the possibilities that really happened. One by one, Anton was forced to react to these possibilities, just as we all must react to the unforeseen in our daily lives. His immersions invented themselves capriciously. It felt like an endlessly weird concatenation that defied logic and made the task of describing the unseen virtually unattainable. Within its realms, the transformations it made were as instant as they could be horrific. So that it was the chatter of cafe-goers, along with the clatter of cutlery and crockery, that served as the only antidote to the perils Anton faced, in a locus so unique it was off any prospector's map. He became convinced of the notion that if he could find his way back to the cave, he would have unlimited access to the mind-blowing immersions he'd been experiencing only piecemeal so far. It was obvious that the cave was the one place where a person could have whatever they wanted. As long as it was possible to imagine, and as long as he could get himself back into the cave, Anton could think of whatever he liked and it would come true. Not only would he be able to find out how Otto and Flames ended, if he wanted, he would be able to throw off the shackles of time altogether and wield the powers of a god. But before we embark on Anton's travels in the supernatural, where the rest of this story takes place, perhaps a little more about his worldly presence. You probably want to know what he looked like before he vanished. It would be as if you'd just noticed him, sitting in his regular spot at the cafe, trying to put into words something he'd only just visualized. Even if what he'd visualized went beyond the stipulations of what is believable. His hair, layered by streaks of reddish-gray, had the shape of a haystack. His beard was effusive. His dress sense was unfashionably untidy. If you were to associate just one color with the man, it would have been the reds and maroons of a threadbare carpet. Mostly, he liked to clothe himself in corduroys with kurta shirts imported in bulk from the Punjab. His nose was bulbous, and interestingly equidistant between a large mouth and gaping eyes. He often wore his spectacles low on his nose, so he could peer over the lenses. Because his eyes were so big, with shock lines splaying onto his cheeks and over his forehead, there were always going to be hidden qualities to the rest of the face, behind the beard. Looking at him now, he is likely to have been chewing his lower lip, no doubt staring at his laptop. His fingers will have slapped out three or four words before looking up again, blank as a wall in winter. This was how Anton used to write. He'd be concentrating with every atom in his body, then he'd look up with hooded eyes and stare as if flummoxed. In times gone by, he would have stared at others in the café for the relief he needed. Since Urania had come into his life, his reality had become much more challenging to render in words. It may have seemed as if he was looking at nothing in particular before he plunged back into whatever sentence he was struggling to construct. Nobody can have realized just by glancing at him that in each of those fleeting moments when Anton looked up, the place he was in was something so far-fetched it felt unlivable. These displacements may have amounted to just a few seconds in his favorite café, To him, though, each immersion might have gone on forever. In those bolt holes Anton was being conveyed to, without knowing how he was doing it, where time is washed away along with the actions we think of as physical movement, it might take whole lifetimes to adjust before he could begin to understand what was happening to him. We might say, though, that Anton gradually got better at the art of remaining in the unseen for up to a minute at a time, To perfect the mental skills he needed to remain there for longer required doing it without realizing he was doing it, and without having any inclination to do it. The technique was a taxing one. It meant you couldn't plan. You couldn't determine where you wanted to go. Even if Anton found himself drifting through the most perfectly imagined landscape. He couldn't exercise the power to direct himself towards any single part of it without risking a sudden jolt back to reality. I will relate to you a significant episode which happened during the morning of the 17th of February, 2019. It concerns the cave Anton had become so captivated by. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get himself back into it. He couldn't even find it. But that morning, after he'd all but given up, an opportunity presented itself. He'd gone to the café early and was rewriting Chapter 3 to incorporate Urania's latest version of it. He'd finished typing the words, Otto took the card without thinking. He struck a full stop on his keyboard with a flamboyance hardly in keeping with the sentence's import. The key made a satisfying popping sound. It was so satisfying, Anton typed a second full stop, so that the sentence read, Otto took the card without thinking, full stop. Full stop. Both pops were flashes of energy. The second one produced a brilliance that eclipsed everything in the cafe. Into that instant flowed the attentions of a writer who knew that he mustn't, under any circumstances, try to understand what he was doing or where he was going. Anton knew he mustn't try to realize anything. Even his awareness of the rule against being aware might fade the pink brilliance he'd been plunged into. He managed this much, and the popping sounds went on to flush him away completely. It was a noise burst extending itself into increasingly intense washes of light, but deepening in pitch, the brighter the light became. By the time he was being buffeted against the plaintive notes a trombone might make in a pool of mud, it was too radiant to observe anything. No matter how much Anton rubbed his eyes, he could no longer see where he was. The sound of the bubbly trombone wasn't possible to make on a real instrument. It was so drawn out, it became a drone that couldn't have been played in any single human breath. Soon Anton was able to ignore it, or accept it, and the brilliance toned itself down into recognizable shapes overhead. It looked and sounded like dozens of ravens in a fast-moving sky. Two of them were chasing an eagle. The eagle seemed to be shouting for Prometheus. Its calls sang in discord with the whistles of a strong wind carrying the weather northwards. True to the skills Anton had been anxious to develop, he succeeded in being unaware of his presence in this place. He accepted it and moved on. Over a sheer drop to his right, he could just make out the strains of a man's voice singing a familiar tune. It was coming from across the canyon. He pulled on the reins of his horse and twisted his body around. He thought he could make out the words, When the Dog Barks. Before he could fully process the fact that he was riding a horse, this passing auditory experience faded in the whooshing of the wind and flew up overhead. He heard the first pop in the symphony of sounds the wind was making. Someone had fired a shot. Grabbing the reins so his horse wouldn't take fright, he leapt to the ground with astonishing agility and crouched behind her front left flank. His own musket was strapped to his back, but there was no time to prime and load it. There he waited. The silence that followed seemed to be a permanent one, during which the second pop would always be audible. His horse had taken him close to the entrance of the cave, but when the angry eagle flew at him, that's when she reared and bolted. Anton was alone on the ridge then. All he could do was wait for the return of his horse. It was colder where he was. The wind had been forgotten. It was raining. There were no trees at this altitude. In the half-dark, the rain swirled in patterns that evoked trees. But as soon as he looked at them, these impressions were lost. Although he was wrapped in furs, he was shivering and unwell. He leaned against the rock face just outside the cave. He could have done with his winter coat and gloves they were to hand but they were in a place of social interaction the whereabouts of which could not be considered not even in passing desperate not to think of the cafe he was sitting in Anton stared into the blackness beyond the mouth of the cave instead it had taken no time to get there because there was no time What was making him so afraid was the belief that time might still be passing somewhere else. The eagle had flown at him, but it hadn't done anything to him. He'd ducked, and the creature had hurtled overhead in a hot rush of air, screeching as it merged with the dark of the cave. Since his horse had galloped off, Anton had kept his eyes close to the rock face. In that gathering gloom, he could study each brown and red streak, running diagonally across the crystallized surface. His occasional sigh was like a saraband, rhythmic with the cawing of ravens above. The cave was big enough to walk into, but he couldn't let himself go in. The memory of his wife prevented him from taking those last few steps. Even the enticement of having everything he could possibly want wasn't a match for this memory. It was as if Oksana was the only memory Anton really cherished. He decided it would be selfish of him to find out what happens in Otto and Flames, when he could be at home enjoying a cup of tea with his wife. But the prospect of having everything else he wanted kept him where he was. Trying to suppress the guilt slicing through his thoughts, he put his spectacles on and peered again into the cave. Beyond the blackness of the entrance, nothing could be seen. He called out in a mild voice, explaining that he'd come as a friend. The ravens were still circling in the soaked air. As they moved north to other peaks, they sailed into a formation of unfamiliar letters. Now there was writing in the sky. Anton found himself reading what looked like an inscription in galloping alien text. There was no point in trying to understand it. He would find out soon enough what it meant. Yet he stared at the writing for many hours, until it was dark and the rain had passed, and his horse was never going to come back. The unseen was frozen and full of stars. Much later, long after Anton had vanished, he would be able to picture the raven's words etched in the moonlight whenever he closed his eyes. The words made their own music. If he kept his eyes closed, he could hear it. It sounded like the graceful smear of fingers against a large canvas. He promised Oksana then that no matter what, they would be reunited. Although it was bitter out and the birds were gone, he kept his eyes closed in case he might catch sight of her. After a while, he heard her again. In that emanation of a long-ago past, Anton recalled that Oksana had told him to sit up and straighten his papaka. But he hadn't been able to. He hadn't been able to do anything. It was only after another age, when he finally saw himself on the canvas, remembering himself as he would turn out to be, that he recalled the wonderful silence they'd had. His wife was still painting his portrait when someone said something that might have made sense in the end. Love is bound to the time it takes to have a life. It was the voice of a poet. It seemed to come from somewhere deep inside the cave. It brought with it the first shudders of a dawn. You might have thought he looks like a half-blind rodent popping his head out of a hole, then disappearing again. He will have squinted like a rodent as well, as if he could hear something only he could hear. His lips will have been bunched together. He will have been in a state of shock and might have gone on to have had an accident. You will have tired of observing him for any longer than this, though, partly because Anton had never cultivated the appearance of someone who liked being observed, and frankly, you will have had your own preoccupations to be getting on with. There were other attributes that won't necessarily have been prompted by the occasional glance in the writer's direction. If you were very observant, you might have guessed that Anton was exhausted. Sometimes he looked genuinely ill. By the middle of a working day, his awareness of things became dulled. The possibility of making appropriate connections in language, which were the ones he considered should advance his descriptions of the unseen, became less available. Yet it was during that lowest ebb of the day, when his eyes were inclined to droop and he would dribble over his beard, that the rider was most susceptible to the transportations he experienced at the hands of his muse. Unfocused and sleepy is how you will have perceived him in the café before looking away. But this was precisely when he was feeling the onslaught of what he was seeing the most. His face would sag so that in the back of your mind you may have attributed his weariness not so much to age, but to a chronic condition requiring medication. When he did snap out of it, it was always as an astonished victim, as if somebody had poured water over him. Whenever this happened, on being returned to his rightful position in the processions of reality, if Anton was still at his usual spot and he hadn't embarrassed himself overly, He would slowly begin typing again. Using his laptop while he sipped his solution of the black bean, he would try to recollect the raptures he'd witnessed. As the bean worked its wonders, he would feel invigorated by the clarifications and meaning he was able to nuance in the writing. He would always sigh when this happened. Sometimes he typed more frantically, hoping that the speed of his fingers would catch up with the timelessness of what he'd known and the sounds he'd lived in, and the deep indentations that spread from those sounds. What Anton came to realize was that the unseen was the application of a universal principle. The principle was expressed as a wisdom that had been written by ravens into the sky above the entrance to the cave. Back in the somber intersections of reality, for a modest consideration, he'd managed to obtain a translation of the inscription. He was told that the text was Georgian, and that it meant, with With time, time, anything anything is possible. On finding this out, he became more determined than ever to go back to the cave, where he knew his future reader must still be waiting. Chapter 3 The priest slipped onto the train and made his way through Otto's carriage. Although he'd travelled from London, he didn't appear to have packed for his journey. All he had was the book he'd been reading on the plane. He carried it in his left hand, tucked up to his chest. He took a seat just a few rows from where Otto was sitting. Without acknowledging Otto's impassive regard, he unruffled his cassock and crossed his legs. He put the book on his lap and clasped his fingers over the cover. Otto had his luggage close by. One suitcase was by his leg jutting into the aisle. The others sat quietly in the seat next to him. To pass the time, he'd been listing his impressions of returning to Austria after 20 years. There were dozens of impressions on the list already. It was the snowfall. It was the dryness of the cold. It was his body temperature, which was on the low side. He hadn't dressed for the weather, because in England nobody did. It was the sound of the language he'd forgotten how to think in. It was the drawled inflections of the Viennese accent. And from now on, it was the way his name would be pronounced, Otto Loser. It was the fact that because he was back in Austria, his name could no longer be jokily misunderstood. Other impressions had more to do with his immediate arrival. For example, it was how, when he had given her his passport, the border official had smiled. It was how one of his suitcases had a cocked wheel, making it swerve on the move, which was annoying. The other suitcase was perfectly fine. Otto went on in this way, reliving any number of inconsequential observations before glancing at the priest again. The next thought to enliven his register of first impressions was that the priest must be stalking him. This was countered by a very English feeling that he might be getting carried away with himself. He withdrew the priest in pursuit impression as a false one, telling himself that being tailed from London to Vienna was one of the least likely possibilities the universe had to offer. That anyone, let alone an exotic-looking priest, should have the slightest interest in Otto's travel arrangements was a fallacy that had found its way among his more mundane thoughts, and it didn't belong. Adding other impressions as an idle amusement to pass the time, he recalled the border official in greater detail. He approved of her immaculately pressed uniform and her glittery eyes, but couldn't help feeling alarmed by the firearm she had holstered on her hip. Having hardly glanced at his passport, she'd handed it back as if it was the most natural thing in the world for the gentleman to be returning to his land of birth. In the Arrivals Hall, it was the soaring ceilings. It was the soporific lighting. It was how silent and ordered the public spaces seemed and how futuristic this made them feel. But it was more than that, Otto knew with a sinking heart. It was what was coming. There would be the meetings with Marie. There would be the rift between the children. There would be the rabid dog. These were just some of the premonitions he'd been living with over the years. Mindlessly driving, each new impression Otto formulated as his train clattered towards Vienna was knowing in such precise terms what the next 24 hours had in store. As he'd made his way to the train from the arrivals hall, a hackneyed voice had laughed out loud. It was the roundness of the man's belly and the quip about how Otto looked like he was shepherding goats rather than rolling two suitcases along. What have you got in there, the man had said. A corpse? Otto's response was good-natured. I think it's still alive, he said It was speaking in German, he thought And how the man had taken his cigarette out of his mouth to check if Otto wasn't joking It was the smell of paprika and sizzling lard It was having no warm things to wear And then the idea that he needed to buy a coat But finally, and perhaps most peculiarly Otto couldn't help reflecting that most of all right now It was the priest he'd met on the plane. He shook himself free. He hadn't been aware he was staring at the priest. As a way of distracting himself, he adjusted the position of the suitcase on the seat next to him. This was the one with the manuscript in it, called Life in Spot Water. If Otto needed something to stare at, the manuscript told him, he might try staring at his future instead. Because alongside his concern about the priest, Otto's return to Vienna was framed by his looming future with Marie. She had successfully vied for pole position in his first impressions of being in the country again. All of the other impressions were like bees in the hive. Inside it, each worker scrambling so thoughtlessly over the queen was essential to the good order and progress of the hive. While it all seemed too intricate and messy to track everything that was happening in it, The hive was completely logical and neurally connected to Otto's anticipation of seeing his estranged wife again. He drew a sharp breath. Another voice, he didn't think he'd ever heard before, seemed to be saying something important. Love is bound to the time it takes to have a life. It was the voice of a poet. It was in this voice that Otto could feel the thorny grip between love and death. He forgot where he was, then shook himself free again. Recalling that he would turn 40 later that year brought the rhythms of his impressions to a standstill in the snowstorm. For a few moments, he stared at the swirling flakes outside. They were producing a flurry around the bulb casing of a bright lamp overhanging the railway tracks. The train began to creep forwards again. Otto could see his face in the glass he was staring through as his reflection left the lamp behind in its agitated light his attention veered back to the priest. Other than obliquely he didn't dare look. He knew the priest must be following him. Whether he liked it or not it stood to reason. The man looked very much as if he might be snoring now. His mouth was open, his eyes were closed. The dog collar around his neck was all but obscured under the folds of his dipped chin but it was his hands. They were still clasped in his lap over the cover of his book. As he glanced over, Otto was sure he'd spotted the deliberate movements of the priest's thumb and forefinger, twisting and tugging the extraordinary ring. He began to wonder what the priest was like. The reason the man didn't shave regularly was because of the rutted markings on his cheeks. Otto could imagine a rare Amazonian disease producing those linear disfigurements in early childhood and the cruel isolation that results from looking even slightly distorted. Ever since he was a boy, the priest would have felt lonely. Otto pictured how it would have been difficult for the boy to make friends and how he'd been bullied in school because of the scored lines on his face so that in the end there would have been the need for a savior. Exactly like bees delivering globs of pollen to the living hive, these and other notions all flew to the same destination in Otto's passive swirl of impressions. He had his phone in his hand. He hadn't been aware of taking it out of his jacket. On the screen, under a list of favorites, was the number he had for Marie. Disturbed by his own reflexive and unwanted behavior, he put the phone back in his pocket. Before the train arrived in Vienna's Hauptbahnhof, the priest stood up and walked to an exit. By the time Otto was struggling with his suitcases through the dark corners and brash neons of the station, it was late evening and there was no indication that he was being followed anymore. The snowfall deadened the sounds of hundreds of others moving along the platform. Inside the station, the grand concourse was crisscrossed by people in a nervous nest of their own. For all the professionals swirling around, it was the end of an office day. The suitcase, with the manuscript in it, refused to respond to Otto's demands. It swerved away from every line he wanted to take. He kept bumping into people and having to apologize. The other suitcase, which only had clothes in it, behaved perfectly. With freezing hands, he herded them both towards the escalator. His plan was to catch the underground across town. He considered hailing a taxi as he picked his way along, but buried that thought deep in the mental image of an empty wallet. Before he got to the escalator, he stopped to rub his hands. He was able to divert himself by staring at the watches in a window display. Many of them showed different times. More than a few said it was 1822. These were the ones telling the truth, he thought. A few gave the date as the 17th, but not all. Some said it was the 18th. For those that actually indicated what month it was, it was definitely and uniformly February. There was an unimpeachable finality in being able even to approximate the date and the time. As he pressed his way towards the funnel of the down escalator, Otto's smile became more grim. He'd always known he would come back. The last 20 years of his life was always going to culminate in this moment in time because it had been foretold. Yet even if Otto had always been prepared for what would happen next, it didn't mean he had a plan up his sleeve. On giving everything up and returning to Vienna, he couldn't say that he knew what he was doing. Nor did he know how he was going to justify his presence to the one person who might have been expecting some kind of justification. The past existed, but only on the other side of the border he'd crossed. When he thought about it in this way, it became more difficult than ever to give definition to the life he'd been living in England. This was the first day of his life. As he approached the escalator, he stopped to rub his hands again and thought about the salary that had kept him struggling as a lawyer. Appreciating the warmth rising from below, he shoved his suitcases onto the escalator and stepped onto it after them. It was right to be thankful for the small comforts that came free of charge, because the only cushion between the step Otto was descending on and the oblivion that was civil death was the meagre savings he had in the bank. Within a few short weeks, the ropes representing Otto's financial limitations would surely encircle him and tighten. In this sense, rubbing his hands might have been seen as an expression of poverty. It was one Otto never thought he would have to indulge. The grim smile returned, as he recalled that not so long ago he would have had any number of clients, prepared to gravitate to the warm tunneled stenches of a transit system. All the while, as he suppressed his memory of the conversation with Marie he was bound to have, what yawned up was a compulsion to take his phone out and look at the screen. There were no messages on the phone, no emails to troll through. Otto simply needed to have the phone in his hand. The escalator was leveling out, so he put it away and began to roll the goats in his charge forward the rebellious suitcase, knocked into the back of a passing professional who looked around dismissively before walking off. Inspired by an appeals case he'd been running in 2017, the unruly manuscript in Otto's suitcase now had a life of its own. If his personality had changed, it might well have been the manuscript's fault. The assault in 2016 had done for him, but the manuscript was a gathering of all the thoughts that came after. It was a record of the changes that had brought the changes about. At first it had been a relief to write about the shift in his outlook on coming out of a coma. Through the writing Otto had been able to explore the technical reasons for abandoning his career as a lawyer. But the manuscript had taken over and continued to dominate. It expressed ideas of its own, Ideas which Otto found impossible to ignore. As he came off the escalator, the suitcase with the manuscript slipped and tumbled into the path of a medium-sized dog with muscular shanks and a flat face. Otto tried to navigate the suitcases around the dog's misplaced rage. Despite coming from something so squat, the fury released was so animated that Otto felt himself panicking. He'd always known he would be attacked by a dog at some stage after he got to Vienna. But the owner of that dog was supposed to have been a mysterious man. This dog's female owner was tugging at its leash. In a commanding voice, she made it clear to everyone but her pet that barking in public would not be tolerated. The platform taking trains west was silent, but it was alive as well. It had heads and legs and arms and trillions of tiny connectors. It was hunkered in readiness for the ritual of engorgement which would happen as soon as the next train pulled in. Otto took his phone out again. He hadn't meant to. Still only vaguely aware of what he was doing, he tapped the screen, hoping for something absorbing to look at. He had a news app, so he tapped that. Pictures from around the world flickered into his palm. A headline popped into place. He tapped the headline. What flowed out was a construct of the teetering world. It was as he took in a piece, concerned with the sharp decline of sterling since 2016, that Otto became a living cell in the thing on the platform. The story could be read out of context. He hardly read it at all. He barely even glanced at it. In order to satisfy his need to be part of the thing on the platform, he was required only to read randomly from the list of sentences he was scrolling through. Those few words that did fall into place had a special nuance that only a man in Otto's precarious position could attribute to them. A big part of the fall occurred literally overnight, once the result of the referendum became apparent in the early hours of the 24th of June 2016. That's a big change. But what does it mean for all of us? Otto could still hear the dog. He still felt the beating of his heart. He returned the phone to his pocket. Some of the words on the screen remained in his head. He could see them with his eyes shut. They had become condensed though, like a dream image. The fall occurred literally overnight the words said. But what does that mean? He waited for an answer. He waited while the barking on the escalator was drowned by the roar of an approaching train. One night in a good hotel, he heard the manuscript say. It won't take much more than 24 hours to find out what our lives insist on next. Who Otto's counterpart was in this ominously stated pact remained unclear. Ordinarily, he would have been averse to thinking of himself in the plural. He wondered why he was still staring so blindly at his phone. He thought he'd put the thing away. He was about to remonstrate with himself when the train doors slid open and someone spoke from behind. The conversation that ensued was bulging with portent the last thing Otto had expected was to find out that he really had been followed, all the way from London, by an exotic priest. Pardon me, the priest said. One of the suitcases fell to its side. The naughtier one rolled off on its own. Someone bumped against it, but all she could say was, you really ought to listen to him. She was speaking on her phone, too preoccupied even to acknowledge the interfering suitcase. We haven't been properly acquainted, the priest said. It took all of Otto's legal training to respond casually to this now over-familiar person. He spoke as if he had no concerns, as if a dog hadn't just barked so menacingly at him, as if he wasn't worried about what he would say to Marie when he finally spoke to her. As if all of this and more was effortlessly the case, Otto arched his eyebrows, and you are? My name is Father Promentano," the priest said. Delighted, said Otto, and I am France Rubeau It was the first name that came to mind. He didn't know anything about France Roubault, or why he'd come up with that name. But he didn't believe for a moment that the priest had revealed his true identity either. Having established the terms of their engagement, Otto offered a strained nod. It was designed to indicate, in the language of gestures, that he was well aware he was being followed. Father Promentano lowered his eyes. He seemed to understand that he may have committed an indiscretion. His tone was delicate and Hispanic. I consider provenance may unite us again before long, he said. They were jostled by others alighting the train or trying to board it. Like a fanfare up and down the platform, a trumpeting noise warned that the doors were about to close. One troubled element of the professional commute that night, a man with a vicious twist to his lips, reminded Otto and the priest that they were in the underground, not a cocktail party. Father Promontano developed their brief conversation cryptically. In order to smooth things along, I thought I might present my details prematurely. With the efficiency of a blackjack dealer, he flipped a calling card into his grip and extended it towards Otto's face. On it was printed the address and telephone number of a seminary in the ninth district. The absurdly large ring jutting from the priest's hand reflected the movements of others along the platform. Otto took the card without thinking In keeping with the priority of being part of a city doggedly focused on its passage homewards, he regarded himself as having no time to think. He'd managed to stall the rolling suitcase with his left foot. The other one had toppled to the ground. Bending over to pick it up, he heaved both cases into the carriage and looked at the priest through the glass of the closing doors. The priest was walking along the platform, slowly and confidently, as oblivious to the requirements of a rush hour as it was possible to be.